Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, Wisdom Matters, with a message titled, Four Inferior Lifestyles. So let's turn in our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 to 19, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I don't think that anyone can go through life without encountering all sorts of lifestyle issues. I mean, one lifestyle issue, financial prudence, or its opposite, taking no note as to where and when you spend your money. Second issue is around work ethics. That's a big question for today, as more and more people are talking about, you know, something we call work-life balance. A third issue has to do with associations, or who we choose as our friends, or who becomes a part of our circle of intimates. And finally, it's the issue of our affections, and in this case, the matter of what it is that we truly hate. Yeah, you heard me right, it's what we truly hate. See, people choose lifestyles. Oh, I know some lifestyles are chosen for us. I mean, if if you have a job that barely pays the bills, you might not think of your lifestyle as chosen. Rather, it's, you know, the one that has been consigned to you. Uh, But slow down for a moment. I mean, the question of gaining particular marketable skills and being foresighted enough to make proper work choices, that is a lifestyle. If you choose simply to drift through life and get whatever job might be available, that also is a choice. So perhaps, you know, you don't remember making it, but it was a choice. We make far more choices than we are aware. And in our next section in Proverbs, that is in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 to 19, we come upon the kinds of choices people make. What we're going to notice as we study this passage is that four issues are raised. They have no thematic unity. They are, if you will, four unrelated topics. I mean, that may be so, but they are issues that all of us face. And when we face these issues, you might wonder how to respond. What's the way of wisdom? So let's start with the first, and this is the matter of putting up security. If you're unsure of what that refers to, well, let's read the text and then we'll make comment. I'm reading Proverbs 6, 1 to 5. My son, if you've put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you're ensnared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go hasten and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. See, security for the neighbor is like co-signing for a bank loan. It means that you have a person who can't get a bank loan unless someone provides security. And if you become security for that person, and if that person's unable to make the payments on the loan, then the bank has the legal right to demand that payment from you, the co-signer. That's called in this passage, putting up security. Now, at the time Proverbs was written, a person didn't have a bank as we do today. Instead, they may have obtained the loan from a wealthy investor or a relative or somebody like that. But in that case, the person making the loan would have said, look, if you don't pay, I'm in trouble. I I need someone else to guarantee the debt. And in this case, it's the person in question. Now, remember, Proverbs is about a father giving counsel on skillful living to his son. And so the father doesn't want the son to become security. Now, if we read this passage carefully, you're going to notice that it's not an ironclad rule. It's targeted advice. Don't become security for either your neighbor or for a stranger. And so who are those people? Now, Proverbs doesn't describe them. 
Uh, does it mean, you know, we can do it for a family member? Again, the passage doesn't say, but as we read through this passage, let's come back to that question at the end. So notice in verse 2, the son has been ensnared by the words of his mouth. He's caught. That is, he did something without clearly thinking through the consequences. So let's talk about the consequences. I think it a wise rule that you should not co-sign a loan unless you're fully prepared to pay that loan. So just assume that it will come to you for you to pay. That is to say, the neighbor or the stranger will say, look, you'll never have to pay. I can take care of all of it. But it's unwise to assume that those words are ironclad. So you have to imagine how many years of work you're going to spend paying something that gave you no advantage. The loan was given to another, and the cost of paying it has come to you. See, the problem is that so many are convinced by smooth talkers. I'll pay it back. I just need your signature. I'll pay it back. I just can't get the loan without your backing. You know, in the end, it's just a technicality. It won't affect you at all. Someone needs to help me out. I thought you were a Christian. I thought you cared about me. Just help me out this one time, won't you? And with words that sound convincing, the son makes a horrible mistake. It's called a security trap. Closes in over him. He's stuck. What then should he do? And the answer from this passage is simple. Don't let another day go by. Give your eyelids no sleep. Don't procrastinate. Act immediately. Go to your neighbor. Do it today. Plead urgently with him to be removed from that contract. Save yourself as much urging as he did. To get you to sign, use that much urging constantly, every day without ceasing until he releases you from this. Keep at it. I mean, some of us reading this are surprised. Is it really that bad, you know, to put up security for someone else? Yeah, it is. Debt in and of itself is a bad thing. Yeah, sometimes it's necessary, as is in the case when you buy an appreciating asset, like a business or a house. It's a bad idea on a depreciating asset. And it's an absolutely fatal idea if it's for a luxury, you know, like new furniture, television, vacations, something like that. It's folly. But now consider paying a loan, not on a depreciating asset, but on no asset at all. And so the wisdom of Proverbs is, don't be involved in that kind of a thing. Now, let's return to the question that we were asking. Who then is the stranger or the neighbor mentioned in verse 1? You know, some think it means careless security. I mean, perhaps, but I think it means that you're now paying a loan for someone you'd not given the money to. Either you didn't have it, or if you had it, you wouldn't have given it to him for a number of reasons. But says the father to his son, it's madness to co-sign. And if you've done that, don't procrastinate. Take every action imaginable. Get out of the arrangement. Let's now look at the second issue. And we move now from foolish exposure of one's money to one's work ethic. Proverbs 6, 6 to 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. See, in many ways, this counsel is related to the earlier one. It's about self-inflicted poverty. You know, in the first item, it was about a loan. Now it's about a bad way of living. You know, it's important to note that the sluggard, that's one of the, the characters in the book of Proverbs that comes up time and again. Proverbs 20, verse 4, the sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at a harvest and have nothing. That is, when it's time to work and all hands are needed to be on deck, he's not there. 
Or how about Proverbs 22, verse 13? The sluggard says, there's a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets. That's to say, for the sluggard, there's always a reason why he's unable to work. There are thousands of reasons. I especially love Proverbs 21, 25. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. See, there are lots of things that lazy people want. And those desires will molest the lazy person's soul. But it will remain unfulfilled desire as long as he doesn't put out you know, the blood, sweat, and tears that are required to get what he's after. See, we tend not to talk about laziness that often anymore today. We like to say that the person has not found his or her passion or that the person you know, has been discouraged or something like that. But laziness... The unwillingness to work, well, it's a constant biblical theme in both Testaments. Paul writes of it in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 11. He says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And then with that, Paul gives a command for all God's people that God requires that we labor hard with our own hands and not be a burden on someone else. You want things? Get a job! Work hard, make wise decisions, but above all, never stop being industrious. And let's look at what Proverbs teaches in our passage. First, consider the industry of the ant. You know, the ant is used as an illustration of industry because without having an overseeing boss, whipping them along, they're busy storing up food during the summer and the harvest. They're preparing themselves for a time when food won't be available to them. Be like that. Now comes the question. How long will you lie there, you sluggard, you lazy person? You know, it is laziness that's a great contributor to poverty. Now, someone, especially those in, you know, today's woke culture, are going to cry out, no, no, social injustice creates poverty. And look, even while that is often true, that the rich will persecute the poor and steal the reward of their labor right out from under them, it's also true that there is no wealth at all unless People are willing to work hard to achieve what they want. You're going to have to get off your duff. You know, for many years now, people have criticized something called the Protestant work ethic. It's an ethic that came at the Reformation that every work that we do is holy unto the Lord. It means that we work hard because this is what God wants. Don't criticize that. Revel in it. Do you have any young children in your life, perhaps of your own or a grandchild? If so, be sure to check out Back to the Bible Kids, our mobile Bible teaching games for children. Choose from these games, Bible ABCs, Bible coloring, or Noah's Elephant in the Room. Every game helps kids learn more about the characters of the Bible, learn scripture and biblical truths, enjoy educational activities, all in a safe and fun environment trace color and chase Noah around the ark, all while being introduced to Bible stories and characters. It's so important that the children of God are given the opportunity to become familiar with the Bible from a young age. And we hope that the Back to the Bible Kids mobile games do just that. To download any of our Back to the Bible Kids games for free, visit backtothebible.ca slash kids. Years ago, a young businessman told me his story. 
he had started working for a new firm and he had found that at lunchtime, all his colleagues headed across the street to watch the strippers at a local strip club and to have lunch there. Well, he never went. Indeed, he never attempted to mingle with that group. He brought a bag lunch from home, got onto his computer, simply had a working lunch. He was content never to seek friends in those circles. And although, as he told the story, he says he always sought to remain civil, just never close. On one lunch, one man stayed behind. He said, you know, I've noticed you never join us. Can I ask you why? And my friend explained his faith and his commitment to remain faithful to his wife, as well as concern for his children. His colleague said, well, I'm, I'm married. I have kids as well. Would you mind if I hung out with you at lunch? And my friend simply smiled broadly, and he said he'd be delighted to have some company. And after a while, a third man joined them. And then something marvelous happened. Every single man except the ringleader eventually joined him for lunch. The ringleader kept going to the strip club, but he was genuinely displeased that everyone had abandoned him for a new club, the club of men who wanted to be faithful to their wives. Now, the reason I mention that is because the friends we keep determine the direction we go. And no, please don't confuse this matter with evangelism. You can't effectively share the gospel of Jesus when the friends you follow are leading you into unholiness. The third lifestyle issue the father wants to impress on his son is the matter of the kinds of people that he should include in his list of friends. So here I'm reading Proverbs 6, 12 to 15. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. It's an interesting description for someone, don't you think? A worthless person, a person whose worth is not significant. Now, at first glance, we might find that to be an offensive title. Isn't it true that every single person has worth, has value, is created in the image of God, and as such is made to relate to his or her creator? I mean, the title worthless is not only offensive, it's untrue. Now, on one hand, yes, correct. Every human being has intrinsic worth, a worth that's given by the Creator. The translation worthless, however, could be differently translated. Proverbs is speaking about the troublemaker, the person around whom is always something evil. Perhaps you might have met people like that. There's always something illegal or immoral going on. There's always conflict surrounding that person, always hard feelings, always upheaval, always dispute. What is it with such a person? Here's what we learn. This is a wicked man sold on evil. And here's how we know. He goes about with crooked speech, and that's a metaphor for fraudulent speech. This man's deceptive. He lies. You can tell after he's told you a story, you'll later find out it wasn't exactly like that. He's told you something that wasn't straight. You can't really be sure when he tells you something that this is exactly what happened or this is what's true. But how is his speech crooked? We find that he winks with his eyes. And I think we all understand this. And when a person is in conversation with someone, he may wink at a third party. They have an inside communication, something they're hiding from the other. It's an inside joke. It's an inside juicy bit of information. It's not openly shared. There's an inside group that knows. The wink is a knowing wink. The rest are meant to be kept in the dark. And then he signals with his feet. He's communicating things that are meant to conceal his true intent. Now he points with his finger. Again, the emphasis is on hidden messages. 
Hence, the speech is crooked because he has multiple meanings and multiple messages for different people. Notice also that he's devising evil. He's a plan underfoot. You know, most people won't know what he's up to. It's going to be hidden. But once the plan is hatched, it's going to be effective. And then says our passage, the ultimate thing that comes from what they do is that they sow discord. That is, by the time they've shared their message with the right people and have built their case in darkness, by the time things get public, they turn people against one another. Proverbs doesn't end there. The one who does these things will eventually find that calamity comes to visit them. There's an image in the Proverbs text. It's the image of one of those you know, ancient wooden sailing ships. They're suddenly broken. It means that divine wrath is going to fall upon them in the end, and the end is eternal death. You know, we've been talking about the path of wisdom as it's related to three specific examples. The first is the example of the unwise practice of serving as security for a loan. Don't do it. Wisdom dictates that you should never fall into such a trap. You know, I know of one couple who did it for someone, and they ended up continuing to work well into their 70s just to pay off a foolish loan made to a man who quickly squandered the advantage that he had gained through the money and was gone. This is unwise. The next deals with industry. Be a hard worker. Train yourself to lean into hard work and to take care of the tasks that are at hand. And thirdly, stay away from friendships with people who are troublemakers and who delight in bringing other people down. Now we come to the fourth practical piece of advice requiring wisdom. And this one has to do with the seven deadly sins. That's interesting. You might remember that the medieval church constructed a list of seven deadly sins, and they were pride, anger, envy, impurity, gluttony, slothfulness, avarice, or greed. It was said that these seven sins were the leading sins that caused men or women to forfeit their eternal souls and should therefore be avoided at all costs. Now, of course, the Bible doesn't contain that list, but the Bible has the Ten Commandments. You know, I love to call the Ten Commandments the top ten things that God really hates. Now, here in Proverbs, there is a list of seven things that God hates. So let's read about those. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. So consider each of them in turn. First, haughty eyes. These are eyes that are lifted up in arrogance. It's called pride. It's an arrogant spirit that sets its own eyes higher than anyone else. This is the person who regards their own importance as greater to those of others. Second is the lying tongue. Notice we've gone from the eyes to the tongue. This is the person for whom words are a vehicle of what they want, not to tell what's true. It's the person who thinks nothing of lying. Their conscience is not bothered. They're habitual. They've lied so often, they themselves are sometimes strangers to the truth. Third, we move to the hands, hands that are swift to shed blood. This is the violent man or woman. This is the person who gets what they want, regardless of who they hurt or the lives they devastate. We know of cruel world leaders that gladly go to war, regardless of how many generations of people they will devastate. We know of murderers. But the man who sheds blood is the man whom the value of life is never considered. Their own way is what matters. Fourth, we move to the eyes, to the tongue, 
to the hands, and now to the heart. This is the heart that devises wicked plans or wicked schemes. This is the person who plans well in advance so that the evil that they do is not the result of a sudden opportunity, but rather as a result of premeditation and careful administration. Now, fifth, we move to the feet, feet that quickly run to evil. There is no stutter step here, no hesitation, no chance to turn around. It's a sudden dash towards evil because evil is within reach. Indeed, it's, it's probably more than that. Instead of having a natural repugnance for evil, this person has an enthusiasm for it. Whenever it's possible to do evil, such a person sees evil as a stroke of good fortune. This is the vandal who delights in throwing a brick through someone's window, or the computer hacker who simply finds joy in shutting down a business, or a person who loves breaking rules just because the rules are there. And six, there's the person who's a false witness who breathes out lies. This is insidious because this brings great damage to people and sometimes even puts the innocent into prison. Seventh and finally is the climax. This is the one who sows discord among brothers. This is the one who's not satisfied until strife tears at what would have been a long-term friendship. And the point's easy. God hates this stuff. And because God hates it, so should you. You want to live well. You want to have the best possible outcome in your life. Well, live in such a way that you stay away from those things that pit you and God on the opposite side of the fence. Don't make God your enemy. Thanks so much, John. You know, we talk about a lot of things about wisdom, and it seems to be about the, the more primary issues, but is it even possible that wisdom speaks into the more mundane or routine aspects of daily living? Well, you know, and if it doesn't speak into those routine aspects, I, I think a lot of the power of wisdom gets missing. I mean, you know, I mean, consider that first inferior lifestyle, you know, there's somebody that's being asked to put up security for someone else, and that might not be routine, but at the same time, you know, this is the kind of thing that people get involved in uh, on a regular basis. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because these kind of irregular things come up so regularly in our lives. And it's hard for us to, you know, always think about what might come up next. And yet, uh, you know, how so many things which seem, you know, mundane yet require so much wisdom because the ramifications of the decisions that we make uh, end up, you know, tying up so much of our lives. So, um, you know, I think it's very important to think about wisdom in terms of of those regular events and how the wisdom of God does transform human lives. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Wisdom Matters, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Our society is filled with hustle and noise. Everyone is in a rush to go and do. We always are striving to be productive, and too often we carry this flustered spirit into our faith. But what if God was looking for our presence and not just our productivity? God wants us to know Him intimately. This requires time, time to be still and silent with Him. So, in response, Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld have created a new 30-day devotional entitled Quiet Spaces, Volume 2. This is the next installment of the original Quiet Spaces devotional. 
This is your opportunity to take a moment in the Word, a quiet space for God in your day. So we want to send you this resource, Quiet Spaces Volume 2, for free this month by just calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visiting backtothebible.ca.